The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Coming up this week, we talk to the artist Christo. I like to do the things I like to do, to be free, to be totally irrational, and I will not give a one centimetre of my freedom for anything. Now, every year the art newspaper publishes a special report on visitor figures at museums and galleries throughout the world. An exhaustive process which gives us a chance to analyse the most popular museums and exhibitions of the year. The report for 2017 is included in the current print edition of the art newspaper and online at theartnewspaper.com. Joining me to discuss some of the highlights and ponder the importance of the visitor figures to museums and galleries are Martin Bailey, our London-based correspondent, and Emily Sharp, our senior editor of conservation and research, who's worked on these surveys since 2005. Martin, I thought we'd begin with you. You've written a story for the front page of this month's art newspaper, which is all about UK museums and a fall in visitor numbers to the museums. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, um, I looked at the figures for English um, national museums over the last 10 years to see what the trend has been. And it was very interesting because the total number of visitors to uh, museums in England rose in the last 10 years um, from 39 million. Um, It then rose up to 50 million in 2014 and declined after that. Um, So there's been a continual rise and then a continual decline in 2014. So something has obviously happened then. What is that something? Do we have any indicators? Well, there are a number of things. Um, uh, There have been terrorist incidents in London in in the last year or two which have um, impacted on figures and uh, particularly affected um, school groups coming into central London. It seems that visitor numbers from abroad, international tourists, have actually increased. So this means that the decline is due to UK visitors not coming to the museums. And I talked to several um, National Museum directors, and their explanation is that it's becoming so expensive to travel in London to London for those outside, that train tickets are now so expensive that a lot of families are finding it difficult to come to London for the day. And you can see that a family of four, say, coming from Birmingham or somewhere like that, you know, might well be spending £200 um, on rail tickets and pizzas or whatever they need for the kids. So it is sad that there's been the decline. I mean, one other possible factor is that the admission prices of uh, major exhibitions are going up. And it's interesting, there's been a sort of psychological £20 barrier and national museums have tried to keep the tickets below that. But for the current Picasso exhibition at Tate Modern, which is a fantastic show, um, the ticket price is, um, I think, £22. Uh, So that's really adding up. So there is a disturbing long-term decline over the last few years and um, museums are going to have to look very carefully at what... the uh, reason for the problem is and then try and address it. I think it's really interesting because certainly the new Labour government between 1997 and 2010 was very focused on expanding access, increasing visitor numbers, keeping national museums free and really wanting to bolster these numbers. Is the current government taking the same approach? Would Would the current government be 
concerned about these visitor figures dropping? I think they would. Um, I mean, if you work out how much it costs to run a museum per capita, um, the fewer visitors you have, the more expensive it becomes. And of course, the government is funding these museums or partially funding these museums. So they do look very carefully at the figures. And there's been a very substantial drop of the National Portrait Gallery over the last couple of years and um, a significant but lesser drop at the National Gallery. And my guess is that the Department of Culture, um, you know, is asking very pointed questions of those two institutions as to why the figures are declining. The point that you make about families struggling to get into London with, with high rail prices, there is a sense that the sort of prime visitor that we might have expected to visit museums as those, those visitor numbers rose is actually finding it struggling to make ends meet in the same way and that culture might suffer as it might be one of the first things that's out the window as they try to make ends meet. Yes, and that problem is very difficult to, to address directly. And, I mean, there is a further difficulty that the government, quite rightly, has encouraged um, a wider spread of visitors, uh, from UK visitors, so um, more people from the ethnic minorities. Uh, they um, naturally want more young people to come um, who um, will then enjoy the museums for um, their entire life. But it is quite a challenge, uh, the National Museums have found, to get this change in the makeup of the visitors. So that's another challenge that's on the table. And the government um, is also going to be putting pressure on museums to try and deliver more on that front. If, as you say, the government is concerned about visitor figures at, say, the National Portrait Gallery, what can it do to intervene? Well, the government funds or partially funds the museums and they have funding agreements with targets um, um, included. Um, So the museums are under some obligation to try and uh, do their best to deliver. So theoretically, the government can say to the National Portrait Gallery, uh, you're not really pulling in the visitors, Uh, you know, you're not going to get an increase for for inflation, say, uh, whilst uh, the other museums might. I mean, the difficulty with the government doing that is that um, it would become a vicious circle. If the National Portrait Gallery um, got a lower government grant, um, then, in fact, it would be in a more difficult position to deliver to the public and it would become a less attractive place to visit. So there's a danger of a downward spiral. Government um, being tempted to reduce government grants um, for institutions that aren't pulling in the visitors. The galleries um, that don't get the visitors will lose income from the shops and the cafes, and there will be less money available to mount excellent exhibitions which will pull in the visitors. So there is really a danger there. Emily, you've worked on this visitor, sur- visitor figure survey for so long now. You've, you've gathered this data painstakingly, exhaustively with teams of researchers. Tell us a bit about that process. How do we go about doing it and how do we work out how, it all, how the numbers come together? We contact museums. We have two teams that work on it in the U.S. and the U.K. We contact museums all over the world and we ask them for their figures. Um, and they, it's you know three months of research, pretty much, um, getting the information back and going through it very carefully and looking for anything that you know doesn't quite look right or um, um, trying to you know explain things that maybe at first don't seem obvious and then you go into more detail um, and through it we come out with some really unusual sort of 
um, uh, results. And it's, it's not something that anybody else does, probably because it's slightly crazy. It takes forever to do it, and it, it takes a really um, dedicated team to be able to do it. But one thing is that we do know that it matters a lot to museums, don't we? Because we see that they're tweeting them out and, and sending press releases out about them. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, you, they, we have just looking at doing, before we wrote the analysis for this this latest survey, looking at pre- museums on their websites and looking at previous shows to do comparisons. So many times at the bottom of the, the webpage on a certain exhibition, it will say ranked 10th on the art newspaper's attendance survey. Um, and, you know, when they, the Guggenheim Bilbao with their big anniversary, you know, sending out, you know, press releases and, you know, Saatchi always picks this up and there are various different um, museums that they do. They make a big deal about it. So, what we do is we gather data both in terms of the general visits to museums but also to exhibitions. Can you tell us about some of the sort of top-line, headline uh, figures for this year's survey? This year, the top museum um, exhibition show is the Tokyo National Museum, which has been on our in our top slot before. Um, that was with a 12th century Japanese sculptor, Yunkai. That it might not be a familiar name to, to many people, but um, out, maybe outside of, of Japan or Asia. But uh, about 11,300 daily visitors went to see that, or 300 or 600,000 in total. What about Western Europe and the US? What are the standout figures for those? Well, definitely, I think that the star this year. Um, in the West, the Foundation Louis Vuitton with their Shukin show. I think that was, that was, they had 1.2 million people. 1.2 million people, which is more people that actually went to the Tokyo show. But in terms of daily visitors, it had about 8,900. Still not too shabby, um, but not as it can't beat the 11,000. Um, but that was a, a tremendous success. And I think it also shows the, the, the power and of, of these private museums that are popping up and their ability to secure these amazing loans and really put their money behind these shows. Now, one of the things about gathering these, these visitor figures is that obviously some of them relate to free exhibitions, others relate to... Uh, Ex- uh, exhibitions where if you buy a ticket for the museum you get into all the, all the exhibitions and all the displays but some you actually pay for as a sort of single transaction and I think David Hockney at Tate Britain is a real standout figure in that regard isn't it? Absolutely um, I mean there's hometown advantage there as well it was a it was a record year for Tate Britain they had 1.8 million visitors and the Hockney um, is the museum's most popular show by a living artist um, and I think since our since we started collecting data from them. And, and what about the US, Emily? Well, there were, there were several standouts, I think. But one, again, you could see this definite hometown advantage when you had, for example, the, the major retrospective that MoMA had uh, that traveled to SF MoMA of Bruce Connor, a California artist. And it did better at San Francisco, at SF MoMA, than it did at in New York. And then again, it, you see with Rauschenberg, the big Rauschenberg show that everybody was waiting for, did better at MoMA than it actually did at Tate, where it started um, earlier. Another interesting fact is that it wasn't all doom and gloom for British museums, was it? There were some museums that did better uh, 
in 2017 than they had done in previous years. Yeah, absolutely. Like we said before, you know, the Tate Britain actually, they had a record year. The V&A had a great year, it, it nearly 800,000 more visitors than the year before. Um, I think they were up to 3.8 million. And that, I mean, they had the, the major new exhibition space, underground exhibition space opened. They had their Pink Floyd show. Um, but interestingly, the plywood show had more visitors than the Pink Floyd show, but the plywood was free. But it also had, you know, parts of a Spitfire airplane. Like, how can you beat that? But um, I think, uh, and then you, again, you have something like the Design Museum moving to its Kensington location, which has three times uh, as much exhibition space. You know, they had a record year as well. So it was London Museum's. Had, not all London museums had a particularly bad year. I think what's really interesting in what you just said is that you see the importance of big exhibitions, new developments, new wings. So in other words, to really appeal to get lots of people coming to see what you're doing, there's got to be something shiny and new, hasn't there? Shiny and new or an occasion, I think. Also, if you've got um, major anniversaries, Museums tend to do really well in their anniversary year. You know, you had the Guggenheim Bilbao had 20th anniversary. The Baylor had their 10th anniversary. They did quite well. The Monet show was the second ranking um, show that they've had next to the Gauguin in 2015, I believe. So another example would be the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art, their 10th anniversary year in 2017. It was a record year with 1.6 million visitors. Um, but granted, one of the shows had a Karsten Haller slide. So you could slide between floors, which probably was pretty popular. It definitely speaks to this idea of, the, of us being in an, an event culture. But Martin, is, is it sustainable that museums can keep doing this? You can't have an anniversary every year. You can't open a new wing every year. Can, can museums keep doing this, keep shiny and new? Well, they've got to certainly produce good exhibitions that pull in the punters. Um, and uh, um, if, if they don't, they're going to fall behind. Um, so, yes, it must continue. But the difficulty with that, especially in the UK, for instance, where there are cuts to museum budgets, it's difficult to, to keep pulling that off. If, you, if, you, if you've got less money to fund a show, it makes it harder, does it not? That, that, is, that is true, but museums have got to raise the money, so they've got to go out and find sponsors for the exhibitions. Um, I mean, it's sometimes said that there's too much competition between museums and there are too many good shows in London and not enough visitors. But uh, my view is that if the exhibitions are good, then people will go to more exhibitions and maybe they'll go and, uh, to fewer football matches or spend less money um, in wine bars. Um, so, yes, museums have got to continue to be ambitious and they've got to produce events and exhibitions and buildings and things which will pull the people in. We've been talking a lot about big visitor numbers and uh, sort of heavy footfall, but one thing we haven't discussed yet is quality of experience. And this is something that's really important, isn't it? I can't imagine what it's like going to an exhibition which has 12,000 visitors a day. I've been in exhibitions where it's about 4,000 visitors a day and it's difficult to see some of the works, you know. So are we thinking enough about 
what the visitor experience is like, Martin? Well, it is very important, and I think museums are increasingly uh, considering it, and the National Gallery is just about to uh, open its Monet exhibition, which will be extremely popular. And interestingly, for the first time, they have not put the uh, labels with the titles um, and dates of the paintings on the wall, but they've just put numbers um, so uh, there's a free booklet which gives the information. And the reason this has been done is they are expecting large crowds, but they don't want the crowds reading the labels. They want the crowds actually looking at the paintings. Um, so I think that's a very simple way where the museums are tackling it. Um, it is difficult for visitors uh, when there are a lot of people. I mean, there are sort of tricks of the trade. You don't necessarily need to go around and look at every picture in numerical order. Uh, you can sort of weave around uh, and see pictures that way. But yes, the visitor ex- uh, experience is important. And um, it's sometimes a bit dispiriting to see so many visitors in exhibitions and then the permanent collection is relatively um, um, sparsely attended. Uh, and if people really are concerned about the discomfort um, of seeing crowded exhibitions, um, maybe they'll be tempted back to see the permanent collections, which are fantastic, uh, whether you're um, in London or um, Paris or New York. Emily, there's a really interesting article written by our colleagues Helen Stoilis and Victoria Stapley-Brown in the, in the attendance special, which looks at the local loyalty that museums attract. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, they decided, because the piece, they've termed it as the most cultured city in the U.S. I thought that was very neat. It was very, I thought it was very clever. Um, I wish I thought of it. But they, um, what they did was they looked at top museums in the U.S. in uh, 2016. And then they looked at the most overall total uh, visitors and you tend to think when you think of most cultured cities, you tend to think of New York or Chicago, but they actually found that places like Houston and Grand Rapids and Kansas City, they actually ranked quite high in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, with Crystal Bridges because they had they looked at the percentages of the locals, they looked at the local popu- populations, and they contacted the museums to find out how many of those visitors from that year were local. And they found out, for example, for the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, 85% of their visitors were locals. Um, And uh, LACMA, LA County Museum of Art in LA, 79% local. Uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis Institute of Art, 77% local. They also looked, in, in according to the regional populations, to see how many people uh, went to the museum. And they actually found that for 2016, Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, which an amazing collection of American art, um, had 622,287 people in 2016. The population of that metropolitan area, area is 525,000. So that's a huge, huge rate. And they also looked at, in terms of how many visitors are actually members at some of these institutions. They found a lot of the institutions, you know, outside of New York and, and Chicago and the big, what we consider cultural centers, um, had really high member rates that would, would uh, attend the museum. So like Frederick Meyer Sculpture Park, Grand Rapids, 54% were members. They also um, found that speaking to a lot of these institutions, the repeat visitor is quite big. You know, you might have somebody that goes 12 or 13 times a year. 
So maybe it's this, you know, these these inst- these cities where you don't have maybe as many institutions. People really embrace the ones that they have, and the museums in turn really work very very hard to engage the local audiences. So from Brazil to Tokyo to London, you, we are seeing with these. By, the survey is showing that people are embracing museums. They are attending their late nights. They are going to DJ parties in, in Paris um, at, you know, at, at an Asian Antiquities Museum. They are, they're, they're making the most out of these museums and their collections. And museums, in turn, are responding and they're, they're engaging with their local audiences. Yes, I think I think for all the ups and downs that we that we capture in the in the visitor figures survey, ultimately this is a big success story. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. And Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Martin's report on UK museums and our art's most popular supplement in the print edition of the art newspaper. And a reminder that it's also our three hundredth edition and accordingly has lots of very special features. You can subscribe to the paper at theartnewspaper.com. Now, the Bulgarian-born artist Christo is known for his spectacular public projects, often wrapping in fabric well-known buildings like the Reichstag in Berlin or the Pont Neuf in Paris, or geographical spaces including an Australian coastline. For most of his career, he worked alongside his wife Jean-Claude, but she passed away in 2009. Christo continues to work on grand projects, and this summer he will realise his first major work in the UK, in the Serpentine Lake in London's Hyde Park. It's a vast floating sculpture made from oil barrels on which construction began this week. An accompanying exhibition of Christo and Jean-Claude's work will open at the Serpentine Galleries at the same time. Our contemporary art correspondent, Louisa Buck, met with the artist earlier this year. So, Christo, you are making the London Mastaba for the Serpentine Lake, and this is a floating structure of many thousand oil barrels in this very particular shape, the Mastaba. Can you tell me about the shape and about the origins for the piece? Now, the, first, the name. The name came from the, uh, we humans know, the first urban civilization in the world is the country called Mesopotamia, today Iraq, when they have the first time archaeologists discover street and houses mud houses, and in front of these mud houses, there was a bench. The bench is done by a form, flat surface that you can see, two slanted wall, two vertical wall. And that word exists only in the area in the Middle East when we're working, all people saying that mastaba. Later, that form became the tomb of Pharaoh in Egypt. And the mastaba that you are making is made from oil barrels. Ah. Now, now, now. Many thousands. Tell I me tell about you, this. I will tell you that. First, if we stack oil barrels or cylindrical object, or object like the cans or bottles, them, that stacking horizontally, you have an angle which is always 60 degrees. Basically, stacking oil barrels horizontally, the angles of the slanted wall is 60 degrees, of course, the vertical wall is the end of the barrel. And the sculpture on Serpentine Lake will be built by 7,506 oil barrels. And they are uh, normal, large size oil barrels, which is basically around 60 centimeter diameter 
an 89 centimeter, 90 centimeter length. And they start horizontally, and this uh, proportion of that sculpture is two, three, four, meaning a 20 meter height by 30 meters slanted wall on the ground, and the uh, 40 meter vertical wall on the ground. The footprint is 20, uh, 30 by 40 meters. And this is particularly chosen for the site of the lake. It occupies about 1% of the lake's surface, but you chose it to be very much part of its surroundings and yes. to work with and the surroundings. Yes, yes, uh, you know, there are many things involving to floating. That is important, to have the, the water. The structure is not in, in the ground, it's not in the base, it's literally float. I'll actually, you will see when it will be installed, that is moving, the breathing, because it's sensitive of the movement of the water. But actually, is the structure, the volume of the structure is 500 tons. <laughs> you know, is the <laughs> I cannot imagine how high it would be. It's the height of five and a half, six-story building. So those barrels have been working, making either walls or mastaba. Um, Structures right, right from the very, very beginning. Exactly. Now, uh, now the the from I live in Paris a bit. Jean Claude Dumasier lived in Paris between fifty-eight and sixty-four. We immigrated to United States in sixty-four, not United States. Jean Claude always did immigrated to Manhattan, New York City, and we still live in the same building, the same place since nineteen sixty-four. Industrial building. Arriving in the United States, I was very eager to develop more substantial presence of the mastaba I like to. And the first proposal to do large outdoor sculpture of barrels, mastaba, was outside of Houston, between Houston and Galveston and Texas in the mid-60s. Drawings of that proposal would be also an exhibition. But of course, we never get permission. So you've you've had many tries, tries, attempts to make mastaba sculptures yeah. in the past, including a floating sculpture on um, on, on Lake Michigan, I gather. Yes, exactly. Well. Also, barrels floating on Lake Michigan. Barrels floating. So, so this, so in a way, what we're, what we're going to see in London in the Serpentine will be finally. the culmination, finally, of you being able to make a large-scale mastaba in London that's on the surface of the water. Yes. Not almost, you float on the surface of the water. You know, not, actually, you should see that the, this is 7,506 barrels, and the, the first row of the barrels, uh, almost half or one-third will be in the water. Literally, you cannot see any, you cannot see any base, anything. The barrels will be underwater. I wanted us to talk a bit about how you select the environments for your work, because your works have run across mountainsides, they've gone over valleys, in parks, across the globe, across the world. How do you select the environment for your work? Okay. What are your criteria? Okay, you know, there are two important things. All our work is done when the people live. We don't never do work somewhere in forests, in the mountains, nobody go there. Uh, and this is why there works an urban space, it work on rural space. The urban space like the Berlin Reichstag project, the Central Park gates, or rural space like a running fence in Northern California, or umbrellas in Japan in California, the countryside. But there are always presence of human, man-made structure. In the rural side, we always need to have a telephone pole, road, bridge, house, 
that you can relation to the scale because in the wilderness you have no relation how the thing is wide, wide, long, big, etc. This is why we work only in these two, two situations and they are very, uh, 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 how to select it, all my life is about hundreds of circumstances and there I do not put my finger in the world map do I like to do there. For example, the project we did in Australia in 1969, Rap Coast, was not designed for Australia. It was uh, some, some project they designed it for particular sites, like the Reichstag, like the Central Park. But some project is concept and we need to find a site. We try to do the Rap Coast in the California, and California coast near the uh, uh, um, southern, southern California, but we never get permission. By the circumstance, connection, great collector of ours uh, living in Australia, I ask him, please help me <laughs> to, to realize that project. This is why finally Rap Coast was fine in Australia. The same thing with the, the floating piers and Lake Iseo just two yes. years ago. Was not designed for that. Was designed in, for in 1970. <laughs> and uh, in 1970, we designed to make floating pier on the delta of Rio de la Plata in Argentina. We never get permission. But we love to do that, to the have people walking in the water. And when I finished the Rystek project, Jean Claude was saying, let's try to convince, do a project in Japan. We did project in Japan, the umbrellas, we have a lot of friends, and we almost did it in the floating pier, an area of Tokyo Bay called Daiba. But in the last moment, we have a huge fight with the authority of Tokyo, and we walk away. So Finally, so find the lake I know very well from the late 50s in the foot of the Alps in Italy, Lake Iseo. And all this documentation, all these different attempts, all these different environmental impact reports, all these feed into your archive. They're all part of your work to a great extent. Of course, yes, yes. The long battles that you, no, that you but, but you know there, no. But you should you should grasp that this project. If I have time, I have to explain it. This project is not the things. This project is the the uh, 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 the venture exp- like a journey, and I to give you example. Some project in the last fifty years, Jean Claude and myself realized twenty three project and we failed to get permission for 47 projects. Some project was refused, it wouldn't like to do it anymore. But some project was refused one, two, three times, and we still stubbornly like to do it. Now, each of our project, including the, uh, the floating master, like you say, the, um, and, uh, Lake Hyde Park, is, is really have two distinct periods the software period and the hardware period. I wanted to talk to you about that because I love that definition you have yeah, of software and, being, and, and being the realisation and the hardware and the, being the project Because there itself. is a software period when the work do not exist. Mm. Exists in drawing and sketch and scale models and hundreds of uh, documentation and thousands of people who try to help us and thousands of people who try to stop us. That software period is the principal part of our work because this is the reason we don't do commission. Because we discover, we understand what is the project is to the software period. We'd be totally wrong to tell you that I know what was the Reichstag in 1972 when I start. I learned what was the Reichstag in 25 years, what is that. And that software period developed participatory public, meaning there are hundreds, 
thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people think how the work will be awful, how the work will be beautiful. Basically, people think about the work of art who do not exist. So the software period is crucial for crucial. actually establishing it in people's imaginations, no, establishing but also that, is that is not done on purpose. I like to have a short, it's a good but that is the only way to get permission. You should know that each project when we like to do is always, each project, the f- most important part is to find who owns the site. There are no one square meters in the world do not belong to somebody. And each t- time we go to the investigation that the sign owns by private entity, by the city or the counties or the state or entire nation, like the case of the Reichstag. Technically, the Reichstag is owned by the German nation. Fortunately, it's presented by the 600 deputies in the parliament who present the German nation. Significantly, you've actually walked away from a project, uh, which is the Over the River project, 42 miles of draped canopy, silver canopy over the Arkansas River in Colorado, because that land is federal land and the new landlord is Donald Trump. Am I not right? I don't like to mention the name. You <laughs> mentioned the name. Uh, uh, you know, this is I like to start from the, the before. The project is happen. If they happen, if we need to put together all the forces who involve that site, and there's no way to do the project if these forces not in the end harmoniously work together. And, and the case of the, if I have time, I can explain you. We discovered that this 42 miles of Arkansas rivers belong to uh, federal government in Washington, basically American taxpayer, who owns 20% of the land of the United States. And they have a Ministry of Interior, or it's not the police, it's the special ministry about the uh, territory owned by, uh, owned by the American taxpayer, who is a very rich, very powerful, who leases the land to ranchers, to building airports, highway, to mining company, bridges, etc. And it is very common that the entity go to the federal government require to lease the land, renting the land. You should know that we are paying rent. We are paying also rent to here. You know, it's not, not simple like that. Uh, even renting the water, if you know that more. <laughs> uh, and and, and we are renting the land and the project start through the last year of Clinton administration uh, the, gov- the Secretary of Interior or the Minister of Interior was a big su- fan of our work, was helping very much, but they were a Bush administration, junior for eight years. We have a very difficult time with him. He, he finally, Obama became a president of the United States, and Obama and the administration were very helpful to g- give us a permission. But, like everything in the United States, is very c- crucial and very critical. A group of citizens living in the valley who was against the project, they take to court Obama administration why they give us permission. And then we go to many court stages, from the simple law court to the higher court to the most high court. And we are in the t- night 2016, we are in the step on one court, appellate court of the United States, one step before Supreme Court of the United States. The government was winning in all the different courts. And when they have this new election, and the thing has happened, I decided not to do the project. I think it's very interesting that you never get any sponsorship, any support, any commissions. You always pay for everything yourself, both the construction, the maintenance, the yeah. dismantling, the development. Tell me why that is. You know, 
I was 21 years old, living in a very restricted communist country in Bulgaria. I go to visit my relatives who they Czechs and Prague, and I was speaking only in Russian and Bulgarian, uh, not seen any original works of art of modern art. Already I find Czechoslovakia much more modern than Bulgaria, 1956, you know, very many years ago. And when Hungarian revolution started, I escaped alone, with no relatives, with no money, with nothing, to the West and Vienna. And I escaped because I like to do the things I like to do, to be free, to be totally irrational, absolutely free, with no justification what I like to do and I will not give one centimeter of my freedom for anything. This is why uh, inadvertently uh, 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 in some way fortunately I studied Marxism in Bulgaria and basically coming to the West I used to the very end capitalist system to, use my, to do my project. Basically I have time I explain you how this project they financed, how they decided. It's not easy, but this is the only way. Uh, very simply, I know how the capitalist system works, and my lawyer of Chicago advised me, advised us in late 60s, just in the time of Rapkos in Australia, that we need to create corporation. Not non-profit corporation, normal hold corporation, holding company, and New York State Corporation, Delaware Corporation, actually and my initial, Christopher Vladimir of Russia, CVG Corporation, who that corporation was created to build our project, to sell our original work of art, and to buy back our original works of art. We're the biggest collector of our work. We have our own curator, we have storage around the world, and that corporation built this project. Now, that corporation, if you do project in Germany, creates subsidiary, German corporation, Reichstag. If you do project in California, Japan, they have a California Japanese corporation. That corporation work like any corporation higher. I don't want to understand. This project is not built by me, Jean Claude. It's built by battery of professional people, from lawyers, engineers, all kind of works. It's like building real things. Many people make confusion that we have and our project will have a performance art. It's not at all performance art. We have a real iron worker who build bridges and highway. They are not come to perform and they pay. You know? No, this is basically, we work like a very, very many things who the art world do not understand. And I try to tell you, for example, when we build the rice stack, we make the rice stack. The first art critic who they send at New York Times was not art critic, was architectural critic. Because Reichstag was architecture, rap Reichstag. Basically, if you read our project, in the sun, they're beyond the sculpture of painting or installation of things. Well, you they're see in that. a whole category of their yeah, own. No, no. And this is why, uh, in art world, your very important <laughs> newspaper, you know very well that artists often they have a gallery, or it's with, uh, they have exclusivity of but, the artist. you have no gallery, you sell your no, own. No, I go yeah. to many galleries. We work with many galleries, private, etc. And they have exclusivity to secure the well-being of the artist and to secure their income. We don't have that, but we not have a gallery. We have a huge amount of original work, meaning huge amount. We have a storage. Our principal storage is in Basel, Switzerland. And we have our own curator. Now, and uh, we put it, explain you, you know very well that 
sometimes when the people, a collector, museum, or the, uh, a private collector, an institution buy art, uh, they pay often on the work of art an installment. You know, they cannot pay hundreds of thousands of dollars right away. They can pay a section of that. But, and we, of course, we cannot say to our workers that we cannot pay them because Mr. Smith, who bought work of art, is not paying everything as well. This is why Jean-Claude decided that very, who was the very great lady, she decided we need to work with banks, simply. And we work bank with any other corporation. Uh, that corporation uh, have a line of credit, secured by the collateral of our work of art. It's not secret, I can tell you. We no, work no. with Bank of Citibank, we work with of Liechtenstein, Julius Baer Bank at Zurich, we work with the Deutsche Bank, and the, for the last few projects we work with Credit Suisse. And, and ba if you basically you rent money, like you rent an apartment, you can rent $10 million standby, you pay $150,000 a year, but you have cash available that you know, undersell your work. After the Gates project, we received call from Harvard Business School. Harvard's Business School teach by cases. They are case of Steve Jobs, and they are case of Bill Gates, and they are case of Christo and Jean-Claude, how they finance their project. You can click, you can have these 30 pages. Inspiration case to other case <laughs> to, to tell you how we finance project with our relation with the banks, how money comes coming out. Yeah, so you, you use these systems to keep your independence, to keep exactly. your freedom. You use the capitalist systems to be away from any hands of the art no, world. No, but no, 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 not To do the things I like to yeah. do, the things I love to do, the things I like to do. Of course, I do very few of these things because 47 was not realized. It's not easy, but the, is there totally as our decision, our idea and our way. I wanted to go back a bit to the basic idea that many people will hear yours and Jean-Claude's name and they will think about wrapped forms, they will think about the Reichstag, the Pont yeah, Neuf, yeah, yeah. and so on. And I was curious to know about just what it was, the impulse, first of all, to wrap, to wrap, to no, cover. No, but really, I try to, I use also, also the very, very, very simple example. You know, the fabric, the cloth, is the long tradition in history of art. For a thousand years, the artists used the fabric, actually even can recognize the style of the sculpture. Medieval sculpture, the fabric is much more angular and gothic sculpture, when the Renaissance of Bernini and Michelangelo, the fabric is flamboyant. But what the fabric do, and this is something I tell you, it's not invented by me, is the case of French sculptor Rodin. Rodin did, did have the commission to do the monument of Balzac, the French novelist, yeah. the writer. And the first version of that <laughs> Balzac monument, that Balzac was totally naked, big belly, skinny legs, and many details. And what Rodin did, it take, really, story not in but Rodin take the cap of Balzac, put it in the liquid plaster, and shrive the figure of Balzac we have today. With our wrapping project, we do exactly that. Well, like that. Balzac's cape. Yeah, okay. If you know the Reichstag, who is the typical Victorian building designed by architect Vallon with sculptures, or ornament, decoration, for 14 days, all that was covered from the fabric, highlight the principal proportion of architecture. The, all the detail disappeared. But in like the classical sculpture, all our wrapping project, they're moving. They're not solid material, they're moving with the wind, they're breathing, they're 
And I give a beautiful example. I always like to say, when we were wrapping the Reichstag, because a huge building, was not, there was no scaffolding. The entire building was wrapped by rock climbers who literally come down with the fabric from the top of the building, securing the fabric and storing the rods. And the people was watching, there was the working fence through the wrapping of the rice. It took about a week to be wrapped. And after that, we removed the fence and the people walking the rice. And what the people were doing, come to the fabric, they touch the fabric, they move the fabric. I don't see anybody in London walking and touching the buildings. Now, very sadly, Jean-Claude passed away in 2009. The first big project you did after, after she passed away was, was the great floating piers in Lake Isio. But how are, you, how are you working now without her? You've been Christo and Jean-Claude I, I, for I, half I, a century. No. Jean-Claude and myself were born the same day, the same year, the same moment, on June 13, 1935, and she was always saying, be aware, by two different mothers. And, and I met Jean-Claude in 1958. And we were very young, both of us, 23, and we live together and we fight to have this project. And fortunately, uh, we met in 1961 the great American movie maker who, who documented my film, my our project, very thoroughly. They not make art film; they make cinema verite film. Albert and David Messels, who did the Rolling Stones, "Give Me Shelter" and "The Gay Garden," and Albert and David documented. All the, our project, actually, to the end, when Albert finally died, the, one of the last brother, and dearly they filmed non-stop hundred hours, actually thousand hours of the making of the project. You can see that film how much we were arguing, <laughs> we were screaming each other, almost beating each other between myself and Jean Claude. That to tell you that she was extremely argumentative, very critical, and I miss so much that. And I always think when the things became very difficult and very, very difficult, I always think what Jean-Claude we think now. Christo's Mastava will be unveiled on the 18th of June, weather permitting, and will be in place until 23rd of September. The exhibition of Christo and Jean-Claude's work, staged at both of the Serpentine Galleries, runs from the 19th of June to the 9th of September. And you can read Louisa Buck's interview with Christo in the forthcoming May issue of the Art Newspaper. And that's all for this week. Do tell us what you think, either with a review on iTunes or on Twitter or Facebook at the Art Newspaper. And you can follow our visually sumptuous Instagram feed at theartnewspaper.official. See you next week. <laughs>